You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Once you have your Bible, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark 10. Mark 10, we'll pick it up in verse 17 as uh, we come now to the New Testament in our series, Convinced of His Goodness. If you're looking for Mark and just uh, uh, learning your way around your Bible, it's the second book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four eyewitnesses to Jesus' life who wrote these like biographies about uh, Jesus and uh, His followers. But in this series, we've been tracing this theme of God's goodness uh, through our Bible, starting there at the beginning, back in, in Genesis 1 and 2, and seeing God's goodness at work to create all that we can, uh, can, and can see, His goodness there. And then we've seen and traced these major moments also in Israel's history, these significant moments, and come to discover that in these moments, what are they singing there? It, almost like every turn they're singing, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Even in those moments where, the, where there's, things are going chaotic or where there's this pull towards temptation or even as we saw last week in the pain of desolation, there's peace and security and hope, a conviction found in the goodness of God that anchors God's people. And so now as we continue tracing this theme and cross the border from the Old Testament into the New Testament, trying to track this down, we come to this uh, maybe familiar encounter that Jesus has with this rich, influential man. It's a man who has money and influence, money and power. And if we're honest this morning, those are two commodities that we probably all want more of. This man certainly has them, and he knows how to wield them to get what he wants. And so he comes to Jesus, who has an influence like no other, and asks Jesus a question. A question to which Jesus will respond to and then turn and teach his disciples about. And so let's just come and read it. It may be familiar to you. Maybe it's not. And this will be a new territory. But wherever we are, let me just set the stage by reading Mark 10, 17 through 31. And then we'll explore it deeper. So speaking of Jesus, and it says, And he, that's Jesus, was setting out on his journey. And a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. 
Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Well, this is God's word for God's people. A sobering passage, is it not? And yet a delightful one as well, as it's uh, one of the many hard sayings of Jesus, particularly that Mark here includes. Now, if we were working our way through uh, Mark's gospel, uh, at this point now, uh, Mark has been answering this question on repeat, essentially, that is on the uh, minds of his uh, early readers and would have been in ours as well. It's like, well, who is this man, Jesus? Who is he? Who is he? And, and over and over, Mark is answering that question through these encounters, through his teaching, that uh, we come to know in certain terms that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He's the, he, he's the Savior of the world. He is the Son of God. He is God. He is the good teacher in this passage. In chapter 8, Peter has confessed this and saying, Jesus, you are the Christ. And then in chapter 9, uh, God the Father uh, confirms it at the transfiguration when Jesus is, is uh, taken into this glory like we see through the Old Testament and the Father confirms that, yes, Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is God. And all along the way through this, then Jesus has been teaching many hard things. Hard things particularly about following him. And really, it, it throws to the winds and tests our, our, all our preconceived notions about what being a Christian is all about. About what this life will, will look like. And so, the, the thing is, like when you come to Jesus and his teaching, and we've seen this also in John, is no one can accuse Jesus of hoodwinking us about what following him really is like. Anyway. It's not as though Jesus comes and promises one way of living, and then the reality is, we're like, oh, wow, this is not at all what you talked about. The path to heaven is clear, albeit hard. It comes only through Christ, and the way of following Christ is hard. It's costly. It's great. But the reward, even as we see in this passage, is far greater. And so as he comes to this encounter with the man, the man approaches Jesus with this enthusiasm and zeal. I think he's someone we would all probably want to be friends with or at least to know him. And he asks this million-dollar question. 
Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the way that Jesus answers this, both the question that he asks, the man asks, and the answer that Jesus gives illuminates then for us the central point of this text. The truth to be convinced of this morning. Write this down. Because God alone is good, he alone can save us. At the center of all that is happening here, the dialogue that is happening, God wants us to walk away convinced of this because God alone is good. He alone can save us. Only God is good, and it is out of His goodness that He saves anybody. Now, that's a very simple truth, hopefully familiar to uh, all of us this morning, to which we can say amen to that, right? And maybe... Though in the familiarity, you need a refresher this morning. You need to be convinced of it even more deeply of God's good work, His good deed to be saved, to save us. What's interesting here is he talks about, this man asks the question, what must I do? What, must, what good deed? That's how Matthew in, uh, records the encounter in Matthew 19, 16. He asks Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And so what is a good deed then? What is God's good work? Well, a good deed, a good work is doing a completely for someone else what they cannot do for themselves. It's just simply that a good deed is doing completely for someone else what they're unable to do for themselves. And so it's ironic that the man asks Jesus what he can do. Well, Jesus points out to him that you can't do anything and subsequently points him to the father who can. And how does the man respond to it? By rejecting it. Walking away from it, leaving the offer on the table. In many ways, this is a tragedy, is it not? Jesus lets him walk away. And then turns to his disciple to his disciples to explain, like, what just happened here. It's, it's, it's like, this is the man we would want on our team. This is the guy, the rich influential. And yet in all of this, The man calls Jesus the good teacher, which is itself ironic in true Jesus form. He grabs hold of the teachable moment and he teaches us some things, doesn't he? Teaches us some things about who God is and who we are and what we gain in our salvation. See, here's the first lesson. Write this down. God is in a category by himself. As we come to the grips that because God is good, he alone can save us. He is alone in in this category in who he is. And so just take in the opening scene here for a second. In verses 17 through 22, the, the, the passage begins with Jesus on a journey. Right? He's setting out on his journey. And if we were working our way through Mark, you could trace all this. He's currently like east of the Jordan River and he's about to head towards Jerusalem and his death when he's approached by this man. The man who calls him an unusual uh, uh, name, good teacher. But he doesn't just kind of like stroll up to Jesus. Picture Jesus and his disciples like walking down the road. How does he approach Jesus? He does what? Runs up and kneels before him. 
And so, you know, like just picture here the scene for a moment. What's all happening here? This man is apparently, he's very passionate. He's expressive. He's confident, even charming to the sense he's calling Jesus good teacher, which is really uncommon. You wouldn't just walk up to a rabbi and, and, and address him in this way. And maybe in some ways this, the man is a, a flatterer. He knows how to wield his money and knows how to wield his words to get what he, he, he wants. He's an achiever. He likes to know what a win is. He has some boxes and he wants to be able to check them off at the end of the day. Maybe he's type A. Maybe he's Enneagram 8. I don't know, like if you're going to do a profile on him. We do know he's wealthy. Verse 22 tells us he has great possessions. In Luke 18, the account there to learn that he's a ruler. He's both affluent and influential. And he comes to Jesus, then asking this question, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now just think about this for a second. If like a guy of this kind of affluence and influence, if he were to walk into our church this morning, think of any of the, you know, the, the wealthy, well-known guys of our world, and they were to come in with this in, in just with a big show asking this question, we'd be flipping out, wouldn't we? Excited, like, wow, this guy, like, he's coming to ask this question. He's coming to Christ, and he asks this great question here, a question I think that all of us would love for our loved ones to be asking, those that we've been praying for, who who, who we desperately we want to see following Jesus. And he asks this question that we're hopeful many asks, and as he asks it, how does Jesus respond to him? In typical Jesus fashion, right? By answering a question with a question. To get to the heart. Accusations harden the heart, but questions prick the conscience. And so what Jesus is doing here is trying to prick the conscience to help show him uh, what he is asking and to reveal some things both about God and also about the man's heart. And so he very clearly and specifically in how he answers acknowledges this thing, that God alone is holy. When we say God is in a category by himself, God alone is good. Let me just say that. God alone is good. He's also holy. We're going to come to that in a second here. I'm going to write that down too. But God alone is good. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so he's putting it out there. And what he's subsequently also doing is Jesus is acknowledging that he himself is God. You've just called me good. Only God is good. Therefore, God, this Jesus is God. But secondly, exposing the reality that no one else is good. He leaves no wiggle room. You're like, well, maybe they're kind of good. No, no one is good except God alone. The truth that the Bible reiterates over and over and over. Psalm 14, Romans chapter 3 here. God himself, God alone, he is in a category by himself in that he is good. And to prove it then, look how Jesus lays out the, the back half of the Ten Commandments. Do you see that? All those that you could line up in a list and check off whether you've done it. Have I committed adultery? No. Have I, am I uh, murdered? Have I bear false witness? And all the ones. And how, look how the man uh, responds. He's like, yeah, all these things from my youth. I've kept them all. I, I've done it. I'm, I'm, I'm good enough. But in laying these things out, these, these commandments, and even how Jesus replies to this, he's exposing this, this other truth that I just mentioned, that God alone is holy. He sets the standard of holiness. He is the only one who's kept it. Even in our illusions of thinking and keeping it here, Jesus doesn't even uh, bring up all the instances that maybe he didn't keep it. 
But he peers into the man's soul then in verse 21. See this? And loves him enough to say something hard. You catch that? And Jesus looking at him, loved him. Love that our Lord has for the lost is so undeserved and so unparalleled. But it doesn't cause him to hush up or to tell him all these great things. Yeah, you have done a company on my team. We could really use a man of your influence and affluence. Man, just think with your money, we could get the gospel out. No. Note this, Jesus, God alone loves perfectly. He loves perfectly, even when we don't understand it, even though he lets the man walk away. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And the man walks away how? Disheartened, grieved. The cost is too much. It's just too much. He walks away grieved over the wrong thing, honestly. Grieved over losing his possessions, not over the impossibility of being saved. See, when lovingly confronted with his depravity and inability to save himself, he just rejects it. It shows that you can come to the right person, even ask a seemingly right question, and dismiss the right answer. For what is it that the man lacks? Okay, Jesus concedes you've kept all the law, but he gets to the heart. What is it that he lacks? Any thoughts? I think it's simply, we could say he lacks the surrender. He lacks a dependence upon God, a humble heart. That is, he, 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 Jesus is here showing you lack the surrender. Like, is, is Jesus here saying that we can buy our salvation by giving all of our money away? Is that what he's getting at here? Just to be real clear. Is that, is there, like, if you give all your money away, free, like, live in poverty the rest of your life, you get a, you know, a free, easy pathway to heaven. Is that what he's getting at? No. He's getting to the heart of a man who believes he can earn his way to heaven by keeping the law, by being a good moral person, by having this wealth. And he highlights, well, I haven't done these things. And Jesus is like, well, you haven't done this to really expose then what is impossible for him to do. See, in light of who God is, and he's in this category by himself, he's good, holy, and loving in a perfect way that we are not. It also then shows us the second truth that Jesus brings to the surface, that we can't do enough to save ourselves. We can't do enough good to save ourselves. Alongside of God alone being good, he now, as he turns to the disciples, and even in the midst of all this, brings this to the surface. And the man walks away. Look at verse 23. And Jesus is looking around, talking to disciples. You can just like picture it. They're all, they're all just standing around looking at you like, what just happened? This man, they're walking on their journey. They're hiking you know, through this man comes and asks all this question. And now he walks away. And the disciples are like, but, but uh, are you going to go after? What? And here the second time, Jesus is looking there's, there's three mentions of this. Maybe you caught this in this passage. You could maybe title this passage, The Many Looks of Jesus. He looks lovingly 
at a sinful man. He looks perceptively at his followers and he looks compassionately at his disciples here. Verse 27 also. But he looks around and then he says these two shocking statements. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Disciples start, they're amazed at it. All right, in verse 24, they do not actually get in the point. So Jesus says it again, children, not in like an insulting way, but children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. Right? And that whole, like, it's, no, this is so difficult. And, and some people have tried to like, explain that all the way. Well, there's this gate and the temple and all this stuff. No, no, it just means what it says. Can a camel, a full-size camel, go through the, you know, the minuscule uh, uh, head of a needle? No. Impossible. It means what we think it means. Jesus is not trying to, you know, there's no hidden meaning here. And so they go from amazed to exceedingly astonished. Maybe, you know, like, like you are this morning, maybe you're unfamiliar with this and there's just like some shock here. From difficult to impossible. There is zero confusion about what Jesus is getting at. They may not like it, but what he is saying is crystal clear. It is impossible to save yourself. You, you are not good enough in of yourself and you cannot do enough good things to save yourself. And thus, you can see, or maybe the despairing exclamation that the disciples have there, the end of verse 26, then who can be saved? I'm not good enough, and I can't do enough good things. I can't be bought. Who, who can be saved? If the story were to end here in verse 26, if Jesus was just like, all right, Enough on that lesson. Let's, uh, you know, head home. It would be hopeless, wouldn't it? Because we are helpless in this. It would be. But Jesus, again, that's why in verse 27, Jesus peers into the soul and offers all the hope and help that is needed. Yes, it is impossible, but God but God, the very the words that we sang this morning, those, those truths from Ephesians chapter 2, but God is, he is possible with him, and Jesus would do what is required to save us. Impossible for you, yes, but not with God for all things, even saving somebody who has no good, who cannot do enough good things to earn God's favor. God alone would do the work. Christ would come. He himself would stand in the gap and do the good work necessary to save us. Praise God for that, right? That's why this doesn't end in a helpless thing. That's why it is good news. Even as we come to grips with the terror of the bad news, it makes the good news that much better for us. Salvation is possible with God. All we bring is both our sin and even our supposed success to the table and surrender it all to Christ. Repenting of our sin, believing in Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, surrendering to Him. And that's what he's getting at here with, with the man. Like surrender for this man was in his, he needed to surrender his, his ability to accumulate wealth. But for different people, that surrender looks different. 
who looks different. We need to come to a place of just complete vulnerability and dependence on God. That's why he addresses them as children. Again, not because he's insulting them, but because it illustrates a point. What are children? Vulnerable, completely dependent upon their parents, upon responsible adults for their survival. The same is true for us this morning. God, you know, Christ gets to the heart of what we are unwilling to give up. Maybe that's part of your testimony of God calling you to do something, pressing in on the vulnerable places of our soul. Those things that we hold too tightly to, that we depend on, whether they're substances, whether they're people, whether it's popularity, whatever it is. And God brings us to this place of surrender. Like I said, for the rich man, it was his possessions. Let's again be clear. Can rich people not be saved? Do only poor people get to heaven? No, don't miss the point. Rich people can't buy their salvation. But he gets to the heart here. For others, it may be surrendering our desires to be known, to be popular, to have status. And Jesus, you know, if he was living in this day, he might say, well, you know what? If that's that's your goal, you need to go and delete all of your social media accounts and all your attempts to be known and popular and famous and rather now be willing to live in obscurity for my name. Maybe it's a call to surrender our intelligence the desire to be right and smart and known as such. And Jesus say, hey, go sell all your books, delete your YouTube account, all your other sources of information, shut off your TV, wanting to be in the known or whatever, delete your internet account, and now just be content with my word and the instructions that it gives you to live for me. And all you need for life and godliness is contained therein. I'm not saying that that's what you have to do today. Blur said today, I have to delete my internet and my social media accounts and all that. No. The call to come and follow me, the invitation is also a denial of ourselves, denying our attempts at self-righteousness, of thinking we are morally good enough, of denying our attempts at self-attainment, that I can do it, I'll do it myself, I'll earn it myself, an accumulation of self-interest, always promoting ourselves as first and best instead of following Jesus first and foremost. And it's these, these like self, the selfish bents within humans that is, is why Jesus talks about money here. It's why that's the illustration here, because what is, what is money? It's just a tool, right? It's a tool. It, it, it operates as a, a, you know, as a measurement in our life of our ability to achieve, attain, and accumulate. Or so we think. It's a necessary thing in our life. I'm not saying players don't have money. Don't misunderstand. It's a tool. It's also a thermometer in how we spend it and why we spend it, right? It's a thermometer of our heart towards the Lord and our priorities, and so Jesus teaches often on money. It's an example. There's so much about how we steward our finances in, in the Gospels. And you think back to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, there's two kind of profound statements here where, where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as it ends out, he's like, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve two masters. You, you, you can't. So it's like, what's it? like, note this, it's not wrong to have money but it is wrong for money to have you. 
It's not wrong to have money, but it is wrong to, for money to have you, to be your master, to be your, 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 your lord here. In the same way that all kinds of idols are like, that's not wrong to have kids, but if your kids have you and they're, they're your masters, that's just wrong, right? So all kinds of things here. Somebody's getting at, you know? And so as he's using money, this is like for all of us, it's not like a, you know, this isn't a rich person problem here. It's not, that's the heart. All of us are tempted to love money. All of us are tempted to love things other than God, whether we have a lot of bit or a little bit of money, right? And it's interesting how then Paul will bring this up in 1 Timothy 6 and really describes the scenario that we see here, Right? As he says, for the love of money and is the root of all kinds of evil. Not having money, but the love of it. Loving it too much and craving it, right? It's through the craving of having more that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Doesn't that describe the rich man in this passage? The source of faith, staring him in the eyes, piercing to him, loving him, speaking to him. So Jesus is just driving home this point. If you want to be saved, if you want to inherit eternal life, like the man asked about, it cannot be bought nor earned. We cannot do enough good on our own to save ourselves. But God, who is good and does good. But God, being rich in mercy, abounding with steadfast love. He saves us. He gives us more than all we could ask or imagine. And that's really where this text drives us to. Then as the rich man asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The text wraps up with now Peter asking this question and Jesus answering, here is our inheritance. Christ is our good eternal inheritance. Write that down for it's the final point. It's how the whole uh, uh, the passage wraps up here. Christ is our good, eternal inheritance. It's not an accident that, uh, you know, as we just think through the, the bits and pieces here of what the initial question that controls this whole section here. Good teacher, what must I do? Only God is good. What must I do? You can't to inherit eternal life. What is an inheritance? Something that is given to you, right? Not something that you earned or something that somebody else did to achieve, attain, and accumulate. And now uh, they give it generously to you, the next of kin or whoever it might be. And the whole thing that Jesus ends on is he's like, I am your inheritance. See, get this, like Jesus is both the inheritor and the inheritance in which we receive. Like the good news of the gospel, we then are co-heirs with Christ of the love of the Father, eternity with Him. So you love it, like things are beginning to click here. They're astonished, they're despairing, asking the question. Jesus lays them out, and look at how Peter responds to this in verse 28. You can almost hear like how tentative he is. He begins to say something. It's not like Jesus then interrupts him, but he's tentatively asking like, we've left everything and followed you. I don't think Peter's boasting, nor even like fishing for like some compliments for Jesus. Oh yeah, you guys are really great, you know, all that. But he's clarifying. Well, this is what we've done, and look how Jesus commends them. 
Truly, there is no greater reward for those who come to me and follow me. For those who surrender and come and follow Jesus, Jesus first to announce, Jesus said, there's no one who's left house, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. He's leaving out like here's this great reward, the cost, give up all the success, career, big house, moving from family. You do that for the sake of the gospel. Then you'll have a hundredfold of all of those things both now through persecutions and in the age to come. And so what's Jesus promising? Is he promising a prosperity gospel here? Follow me, health, wealth, healthy, wealthy, and wise for the rest of your life. Is that what he's getting at? No. No, no, no. Lots to untangle here, right? There's lots to untangle. No, what's he getting at here? If you leave these things behind, you gain it a hundredfold. What is he talking about? He's talking about the church, the family of believers, the uncommon community that we share, the homes, the life. Like even, and this doesn't mean everybody has to leave their house or leave their land or leave their brothers or family or sisters. That might be required as you choose to follow Jesus and everybody around you, even those that you love, uh, say, well, I'm not going there. And if that's the cost, again, it's not the cost for everybody, but if it is the cost, guess what you gain? Abundantly more. As you look across our church and all the brothers or sisters here and the homes and things that we represent, like you are introduced into this family, adopted now into a global family of Christ followers. You gain more. And even then, in, 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 in through persecutions, it's not like, don't see that like, man, like Jesus is just kind of like sliding it in at the bottom, right? We've been teaching on this all, all along, even back in the Sermon on the Mount. Also, blessed are you when you experience persecutions of all kinds for my sake, right? Even then, as we share in his suffering, Christ is there with us all the way then, not only now, not even through the difficulties, but also into the future, into eternal life, the greatest reward, Christ himself. And why is this so profound, church? Because in each of these instances, Christ is there with us. And where Christ is, where God is present, there what is at work? His goodness, his steadfast love for us. And the moments when we follow him, when we come to him now, when we gain these things in the middle of our persecution and in the future, the difference maker is that God is there with us. His goodness at work. And so what are the options? The options are first chair now and last forever. Or last chair now, being thought of as last and first forever. Deny yourself interest or accrue heavenly interest. Deny yourself, your success, or take up your cross and follow Christ. And then you will receive more than you can even imagine. That's good news, is it not? Even as we come to grips with the cost, with the bad news, the impossibility of us saving ourselves, we see the goodness of God to save us. Let us, let us not be confused or conflicted about what to do, right? So you can hold on to your possessions, your popularity, your position, your people, and end in sorrow. Or you can hold on to Christ and end in great joy. 
eternal life that's, that's more than enough. You can start with enthusiasm and end in grief or start with grief over our sin and our grief at the cost of Christ and end in great enthusiasm and joy for eternity with him. Which is the better investment? Which is the better pathway? No, to gain Christ and to lose your life is the greatest, the best, the good inheritance our salvation we share is God's good work in us. This is his good work. Let us give him praise. Let us thank him. Let us adore him as we walk today, every day in his goodness. Let's pray and thank him for it and then sing and adore him for it. God in heaven, thank you for passages like these. Passages that uh, put your uh, character on display for us. Passages like these that are clear, compelling, and even convicting, Lord. And so I just pray now for anyone who may be stirring right now. Those that uh, uh, are being confronted with the cost, the surrender that you, Jesus, call us to. Spirit, would you win out? Would you bring many to salvation? Even now, God, do your work in their heart. God, maybe there's just an other cost. Maybe, yeah, we're walking with you. We trust in you, Jesus, and yet the cost is, is still here in front of us. Would you show us the great reward that we have in you, Jesus? in your church through persecution and the hope that we have for the age to come. Whatever that next faith-filled step is, God, would you give us the grace to take it, to thank you for it. God, we do thank you this morning for our salvation. no matter if we were to have to give up everything, all of our great possessions, if we have you, we have it all. We have more than enough. You, Christ, are sufficient. Help us believe that. Help us see it. Help us to live in light of it, even today. We love you, Lord. We need your help. We pray in Christ's name.